when I first arrived in Canada, I could not speak a word of English. There is no way that I could have possibly imagined that I would write a novel in English, which would then be translated back into Chinese to be published in Taiwan, and I don't read Chinese. If you look at businesses, it is no different than how you would analyze the success of a book. Every book has certain things it must do to captivate readers. So I analyzed what that was, and I made sure my book had that. Hey everyone, welcome to the Ignata Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Chan. I also produce and edit this podcast series. I hope you've been enjoying the episode so far, and if you have, please leave me a rating and review so I can get your direct feedback. For this episode, I'm so excited to have Jenny Witterick with us. Jenny is an author and money manager. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Thanks so much, Amy. So let's start from when your family first moved from Taiwan to Canada. It was in the late 60s. You were about seven years old. And you mentioned that you guys lived in a one-bedroom rooming house at Dundas and Spadina. What was the first day of school like in this new environment where everyone spoke a different language and I'm assuming nobody looked like you? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because um, we, we actually, because we lived at Spadana and Dundas, there were a lot of, there were a lot of Asian Chinese kids there, okay. but, um, but I couldn't speak speak communicate with them because they spoke Cantonese and I spoke Taiwanese mm -hmm. so you know on the surface it looked like I fit right in but in, in fact I didn't at all and of course it was Cantonese and English and, and I didn't speak either language so yeah so I, I felt um I felt kind of out of place I I was um you know I was, I was definitely um wondering um what was going on because my dad didn't really tell us uh, that we were you know we we're moving we, I just knew I was going on a trip and you're seven years old you don't really think about too much right and then all of a sudden I'm starting school and and I remember that uh, later on my parents told me that the teacher recommended that I I be kept back a year and they said absolutely not you know she'll catch up we we believe that she'll catch up just we don't want her to uh, to be kept back a year and I, I think that was the right decision because I think that would have hurt my um self-esteem mm -hmm. and that set you up for overachieving even at, in elementary school well you know it's um it, it's funny because in grade two I couldn't speak a word of English but mm -hmm. by grade four I was actually top of the class so okay. it, it did it didn't take that long but I, I learned I don't think I've ever told anyone this um and I don't know why it comes to me now but I learned a really valuable lesson when I was in grade two I did well when I was in, in school in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And for me not to do well, to be, you know, at the bottom, bottom, and not even know what was going on, it was, it was hard. And um, I remember there was a spelling test every, every Friday or whatever. And, yeah. um, and I didn't barely even knew the letters, but I, I didn't want to fail the, 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 the spelling test. Mm -hmm. So I, I kept the book down below the desk where I could see it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I cheated. I cheated. And, and, um, and this guy beside me, I still remember his name, Michael, and he raised his hand afterwards. He said, she cheated. Yeah. And, um, and I was so embarrassed because I'd never done that before, but I just didn't want to fail. And, and the teacher looked me straight in the eye and said, did you cheat? Mm -hmm. And I knew I did. And I looked at her and I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and and after that, I thought to myself, I will never cheat again. I will yeah. never, never cheat. I will because I hated that feeling. Yeah. And I thought I'm going to study so hard that I'll, I'll do, I'll, 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 you know, spell all the words perfectly next week, even though you know I barely knew the letters. Yeah. And I did. And I did. Wow. So, 
Um, so I think that was a really valuable lesson because he did me a favor. He called me out and, yeah. and that was, you know, that, that actually um, shaped me in terms of how I wanted to be and didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. I have a similar story. I don't, it wasn't with English class. My mom made us go to Mandarin class on Saturday mornings and then Cantonese class in the afternoon. So, you know, we speak Mandarin at home. So there was this portion where the teacher was saying a few sentences and you had to write the characters down. And I couldn't write a single one. And that feeling was so bad. I had never done poorly in school. I mean, I did well in Mandarin class. So I that feeling was so crushing to me. And I think we stopped going to Cantonese class. We ended up going to like math class instead. But yeah, I, that was a crushing feeling. Um, you also told me about this oversized winter coat that your parents brought, bought you um, and that you had to wear to school. And, you know, because you didn't speak the language yet and recess was often just spent alone hanging out by the fence. That really draws a picture but how has this feeling of isolation, you know, as a kid been brought into your writing? I think that um, when you've personally experienced being an outcast, and um, I mean, I'm not talking about being unpopular, which, you know, I, I was as well, but, but you know, uh, but just being an outright outcast, um, I think you really um, you take away with you um, how how terrible that feels, especially for a child. Mm-hmm. And so I always make a point of including people or I always make a point of, of treating people who may not be treated as well. Um, I, I suppose it, it's reflected in my writing is that um, I really have a soft spot for underdogs. And I think that compassion and that empathy uh, was as a result of my own personal experiences as a young child. And I don't know that I would be as much if I hadn't experienced that. I, it's hard to know how we're shaped and there's so many variables that end up creating your character. But mm-hmm. I truly do believe that having a tough childhood and belonging and, and, and not having clothes that fit me or, you know, my mom made some of my clothes too. And mm-hmm. it just, you know, I wasn't cool. That's for sure. And, <laughs> um, and I, and not with my clothes anyway. And for a while, and, and I think that, um, um, you know, that, that shaped me in terms of, of understanding how it, it feels that way to, mm-hmm. you know, for other people. Yeah. Um, so talking about a little bit about your family, your father was a mechanic and he repaired commercial and military aircrafts back in Taiwan. And after your family arrived in Canada, he ended up working at Air Canada. Um, your mother, on the other hand, was a kindergarten teacher back in Taiwan. So when she came to Toronto, she had to find a new job as well. And in our pre-interview, you told me many stories about her and they're also grand and movie-esque and inspiring to me. So tell us about her work life after arriving in Canada. My mother has more energy than anyone I know. It's incredible. Like, you know, she left for work in seven in the morning and she didn't come home till seven at night. And then we would have dinner and then she would start sewing to like 11, 12 midnight and then start all over again. But you would think something like that would drag you down, but she had so much energy and so much she had such a positive outlook on life. And and I remember um, one time I was just, I felt so bad that she, you know, she didn't have a car. And so she would sew all these dresses at night and then put them in garbage bag, you know, those big black garbage bags. Mm-hmm. And she'd lug the garbage bag to the bus stop to take back into work. It was piecework that she did at night. And she told me that I had forgotten that one time it was her birthday and I felt bad that she um, had to do this. And so I got up early and I carried one that I, I didn't let her. I insisted on carrying those garbage bags mm-hmm. to the bus stop. 
with her and um, she said that people were looking at her with dirty looks because they thought there's that mother making that little girl because oh. I'm not I'm actually quite a you know I'm, I'm not a big person it's like making that little and I was you know younger than too making that little girl carry that huge garbage bag <laughs> but it was I insist on on doing it and yeah. um, and so you know it, it was funny she always remembered that my mother doesn't have a lot of education but she has really um a lot of common sense and she's also very good she's very good at w- with her hands she didn't have any experience with a sewing machine in in taiwan but when she came here of course when you know she went for a job they asked her if she had experience and she said yes i have lots of experience it reminds me of my spelling test <laughs> and uh, of course she didn't and right away you know it was obvious but the the factory owner saw that she you know she was she said, please, I really need this job. I'll do, you know, I'll learn fast. I'll do anything you want. And so he gave, paid her very little. And she started by cutting the loose threads off of, you know, mm-hmm. um, dresses and, and other things that, that were sewn. And then she would just practice, you know, on, during her breaks. And um, she became the most productive um, uh, seamstress in that factory. And she would make more um, dresses at night than, um, than any of the other girls. What she did was she figured out that if she sewed pieces continuously, and then my job was to cut them because you know she's sewing them continuously, and then group them so she could assemble each dress at the end, yeah, or other pants or skirts. Then she could, you know, she could really, um, re- really increase her productivity. And so she didn't learn about you know Henry Ford and how he used an assembly line to increase. <laughs> the productivity of, of, of automobile production. She just figured that out on her own. She was able to surpass any of the other ladies who had been sewing all their life. So yeah. you have to give her credit for that. And then, you know, she started out, well, after she started sewing, she was making $40 a week. And then she ended up buying the factory. Isn't so that he, insane? $40. When he retired. <laughs> and then buying so the factory. You have, you, have to, you have to admire someone like that. And, and my father as well. I mean, I, I, I don't, shortchange him either because um you know he he didn't get that air canada job right away he mm-hmm. did all sorts of odd jobs before he could get into air canada which is his true profession and again you know he would take any job painting sheet metal work or anything and he would be fired within a few weeks because he just you know that wasn't his that really wasn't his expertise and my father's a proud man and and for him to to do that you know week after week and get fired and then just get up and, and this is kind of being in a boxing ring and somebody just punches you out and you just mm, keep getting up. So, yeah. you know, I have to admire him for that as well. So at this point in my life, there just isn't enough that I can do for them. You know, whatever, whatever they need, however I can help them. Right. You know, I, I'm there because, you know, they, they, they did everything for, for their kids and, and, you know, just even through their example, right. That, that I learned about how I want to be. Yeah. Asian parents or, you know, when they immigrate to a new place, they have so much grit. It's, <laughs> I often wonder, you know, if yeah. I was in that situation, I know I, because I, I know. complain about slow Wi-Fi. you know, I complain <laughs> about, you know, dishwashers not working or something. And I think, yeah, totally. You know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't beat myself up over that. Most people complain about slow <laughs> Wi-Fi, and certainly the dishwasher not working as yeah. uh is catastrophic for most people as well these days. But, you know, I mean, we didn't have a dishwasher when I was growing up. Certainly only, I didn't have a down ski jacket or whatever. Only rich kids had stuff like that. But today it's very commonplace. And I think one thing that is important to remember, which sometimes I think we forget is that, you know, the, 
the poorest person today lives better than the richest person a hundred years ago. Mm, like we yeah. have so much wealth and, and I, you know, we didn't have a washer and dryer when I was, I was in grade, I remember I was in grade eight and I asked my girlfriend cause I had saved, you know, from, from birthdays or whatever, I'd saved up to buy a pair of jeans, which I was just, I just loved because all the other kids wore jeans and I wore homemade clothes yeah. and, and the jeans in those days you had to wash cause they weren't pre-washed like they are today. And I asked her if it would be okay for her, for my, for her to take my jeans to wash at her house and then dry in her dryer. So it could, you know, like you shrink it, right? Mm -hmm. She said, well, let me see if I can ask my mother. And she asked her mother and her mother said, no, because it was going to cost too much for them to use the washer and dryer for my jeans. Oh man. And then, you know, and, and so like that kind of puts it into perspective, right? That, you know, that you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't even think of something like that today. No, absolutely not. I do my laundry yeah. at like 2 a.m. Like, <laughs> so as a student, your English teacher actually pers- well, told you that you should pursue a literary career, but you took a very practical route and went to business school instead for university um, and then worked a very successful career in the investment industry for 30 years. Do you think your parents fostered that sense of practicality into you? Because I always joke to my Asian friends that like my life's mission is to not disappoint my parents and please them. And they're like, yeah, it's like wired into our DNA. It's so true. I think um, guilt is a really, I don't know. I think they all went to the same school about how to, <laughs> how to infuse that into your kids. Because, yeah. you know, I think to myself, if I don't do well, all that sacrifice, yes. you know, all that staying up to love it at night, sewing, you know, all, the, all that stuff was, was for naught. I can't do that. You know, I can't do, I can't put that dagger into my parents, you know, like I I have to do something with my life. I have to make it all worthwhile. So it's that guilt, as you say, that's been infused into your DNA. I loved writing. I loved, I loved literature. Mm -hmm. And in in, uh, high school, my teacher was kind enough to say to me, you know, I, I think you have a gift here. I think you should pursue that. But, you know, at the time I, I, I was very flattered, of course, and I, I thanked him and he was trying to steer me in what he thought was the right direction. But I thought to myself at that time, there is no friggin' way I'm going down that road. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you know, but the average income of a writer is, I think, I looked, looked this up a few years ago, so it's not going to be right on, but I think it was like 2,500 or something. You can't live. Uh, the average writer does other things. And, you know, and people look at J.K. Rowling, whatever. Yep, yeah, these are Patterson. These are few and far in between. And maybe you're one, but it's it's a real long shot. And yeah. And so I'm, you know, I'm a sure thing kind of a girl and I'm thinking business school is more of a sure thing. And, and plus I had uh, a scholarship to go to university at four year continuing scholarship from, yeah. um, so I, I didn't have to pay for university. I, you know, and, and my aim was to go to business school and, and um, go into business. And it wasn't the first choice for my parents. They wanted me to be a doctor, but I, I cringe at the sight of blood. So mm-hmm. my brother, you know, took one for the team, became a great doctor. <laughs> Somebody had to do it. For the yeah, kids. always. Someone and, has to take and, it for the yeah, team. Yeah, someone's got to, you know, everybody, every Chinese family wants their kid to be a doctor, <laughs> right? It's, a, it's kind of one of those things. And, and I, I certainly wasn't going to cut it. So I went to business school. But, you know, I, I can't say that it was a huge sacrifice uh, for me at all because I was very interested in business. And yeah. it's kind of funny because people say you're usually left brain or right brain. But I don't know what it is. But I, I mean, I you know, I was really good. Math was also one of my best subjects. And yeah. I took a lot of math because in order to get a scholarship, you have to have the highest marks. And so if you take a course where there's any subjectivity, 
you don't, you're not guaranteed to the highest marks, mm. but if you take a course like math, where if the right answer, if the answer is right, you get the marks. So I took as many maths as I could when I went uh, like at the end of high school and, and in university, because I wanted to get those high marks to maintain the scholarship because you scholarship, have to maintain yeah. an a-, a average in order to maintain your scholarship. But I also love literature. And it, so it's, it's kind of funny that way. I, I, I lean both. I truly enjoyed business school. It was, it was fascinating to me. And, and I didn't know that people would actually pay you to analyze a company. Like I thought it was so much fun to analyze a company and figure mm. out what it's worth. I didn't think that anybody got paid for that. I mean, I, I didn't know anybody who owned a stock. I mean, I didn't know what the stock market was. Like before I went to university, I didn't know any of those things. I didn't yeah. know what anything costs. I didn't know, you know, someone said, oh, like, you know, he's, he's got, you know, they, they've got money, he drives a BMW. I didn't know what a BMW was. <laughs> I, mean, I was, I was probably as naive, maybe naive is a kind word. I was probably as out of it as anybody could be. Uh, because, you know, the circles that I traveled in with my parents, were so narrow. I mean, their friends worked in the factories, their friends, like, I didn't know anybody who had money or did anything differently. So to me, it was a whole new world right. to go and hear about, wow, you know, the stock market, this. And I thought that's for me. That's what I want. I want maximum leverage. I, and I was so interested in it too. And so, yeah, so I went into um, the investment world and um, luck played a big, big part in my career there. And so um, it wasn't um, it wasn't a sacrifice. I loved it. I loved it. It just later on, thirty years later, it was just you know it was time for a change. Yeah. You know, my mom always said very practically. She's like, you can do this job first, and then when you retire, when you have a lot of money, <laughs> you do your true passion and hobby. Yeah. And I just thought that was so practical of her to say. And I. I Okay. Yeah. My mother wanted me to become a doctor and I tried that for yeah. one year in pre-med and yeah. I just wasn't cut out for it. Like I studied, right. I, I almost memorized an entire biology textbook and I only got like wow. a plus on the exam because I'm good at memorizing uh-huh. stuff. But They so probably I, marked that wrong because <laughs> you should have got an A. You know, so then I knew it wasn't for me and I'm just more yeah. of a creative person, but you know, I'm glad yeah. she came around. You definitely are a creative person. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. Yeah. So you talk about this uh, idea of luck in your career. And I, I I really like the idea of mentors and mentorship in uh, anyone's career in any industry. Was there someone like this for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I don't think I would have been as successful in my career, um, which freed me up later on to do, you know, the freedom to do other things. Without that, when I first started in the investment business, I was recommended um, that was when Pram Watsa, who's, you know, an extremely successful investor in Canada, he's been compared to Warren Buffett. That was when he was just getting started and he needed a right-hand person. And um, I was recommended uh, to him. I had trained where he had trained. And so he felt comfortable with me. And so I basically started with this amazing man when he was just getting going. And mm-hmm. he, he is an incredibly, not only successful, but incredibly nice person who's kind and generous with the people who work for him. Um, you know, I remember when um, when I joined him, I mean, Fairfax stock was like less than $10. It's, you know, the stock has come back with the decline in the market, but, you know, it's, it's still about 400. So you can, you can see that um, he's built tremendous value for, for people, including himself. But at the same time, I, I learned so many other things from him in mm-hmm. terms of how to treat people and how, how to um, motivate other people to want to do well. 
I was in my late 20s and Prem put me on the boards of companies. He, you know, he sent me to interview the CEO of major companies in Canada. And so the connections and the um, exposure that I had was well beyond my years. But he was the kind of person that if you could come through and do it for him, he gave you more and more responsibility. Yeah. And, and um, I, truly, I truly am grateful for that. And, and, and to this day, you know, I, I think that I, I'm not sure that that would have happened with anyone else. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of talk about representation and diverse leadership now in 2020, but what was it like working in finance as an Asian woman? If you dial it back uh, 30 years, first of all, there weren't that many women in the investment business <laughs> yeah. to begin with. Never mind Asian women. Okay, so yeah. That's just like the first, the first thing was there weren't that many women. I've, so I'm very comfortable with men because I worked with men. I didn't work with any women. Mm-hmm. Um, all my partners were men. And um, so when I worked with Prem and all the other partners, he made me a partner, were men. And then when I went to work in another firm afterwards, so we built that company up, all my partners were men. Right. And then when I, like everywhere, all my, and, 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 and I'm a short little five foot Asian girl who's, you know, like fairly slight. And, and you know, I, I'm, I am meeting men, <laughs> men who are at least, you know, of, at least, of, you know, about a foot taller than me and, and, and shaking hands with them. But I always remember very similar to the, the point I made about math, right? I always wanted to take math mm-hmm. because if your answer is right, they have to give you the marks. Well, in the investment business, what is so unique about this industry is that if you can deliver, it's very obvious. Like if you have the returns, mm-hmm. if you can deliver value, the leverage is massive, right? So because a 1% difference on a billion dollars right. is a big number, right? Yeah. So 2%, 5%, whatever. So I was in a business where there was no ambiguity about whether you could deliver or not. There was no better business for someone like me um, where I did not fit in visually or that was great. Um, and, you know, that in terms of the nature of that industry was, was conducive to allowing me to shine. Now that's only possible because I was allowed to, I was given the chance, right? So I'm with someone who gave, gave me a chance. And, and so I think that's why I say luck, because if I hadn't been given the chance, I mean, I don't know if I would have or not, but, mm-hmm. but I was given the chance. And fortunately I did come through. And because of that, other firms wanted to hire me, wanted me to join them and help build their firms. So I was able to do that. Um, and then eventually I had my own firm. So if you say, you know, is the investment industry, you know, good for diversity? I'm a big believer, in, and maybe it's easy for me to say, I'm a big believer in if, if you're the best, you get hired. And with such a successful career in finance, did your parents finally say, it's, it's okay, you weren't a doctor, we're still very proud of you? <laughs> well, um, you know, um, doctors do well, but they don't do as well as people in the investment okay. business. Yeah. So I don't think that they ever had to say that because um, it was kind of pretty obvious. Um, Switching gears a little bit uh, towards your writing career, you wrote My Mother's Secret because you wanted to do something that would inspire people and actually make a difference. And that seems very missions-based. Has that changed throughout your career trajectory? Well, you know, I I think I had the luxury of of doing, um, in my life, you know, at this point in my life, of doing something that um, that doesn't necessarily is not driven by making money. Yeah. Um, as I was earlier, and 
and I was so compelled by this story, true story of a Polish mother and daughter who had Jewish families and a German soldier during the Second World War. I just, I just felt that, you know, a story needed to be written about it. And I'm the kind of person that says, let's go do it. Let's do it. You know, it's like that. I'm, I'm just like that, just wired that way. And so I'm like, well, who's going to write this book? You know, uh, just you go and do it because otherwise it might not get done. Just because I had no experience in writing did not hold me back, which is, you know, when you think about it, mind boggling, right? Because someone could say, well, um, you're going to do that, but you have no experience. I guess because I'm a big believer that you can teach yourself anything, uh, especially today uh, with the t resources that are available today. And so that's what I did. I, I, I didn't let pro probably practicality or rational thinking stop me. And I think that's because I've always believed in being able to achieve my, my vision of, you know, of my goals. So to me, this was no different. When you think about the odds, they are pretty low. And yet I, I just always believed that I would find a way. And I still do. I always believe that there's a way when things don't go my way. I look for why it's that way. And what am I going to learn from that? Because maybe there's a reason for that. Because to me, I will always, you know, I always find a way to achieve what I want. And, right. and um, it may not happen right away, but I'm working towards it. And so, yeah, so I started writing and, um, and I analyzed why certain books were successful. Now I was aiming this book at the young adult audience, mm -hmm. but as it turns out, it has become popular for, for people from you know ages 12 to 70 or 80. If you look at businesses, it is no different than how you would analyze the success of a book. Mm -hmm. There are certain key success factors to every profession. And every industry has certain things it must do in order to be successful. Right. Every company has certain things it has to do. Every book has certain things it must do to captivate readers. Mm -hmm. So I analyzed what that was and I made sure my book had that. Yeah, very strategic and almost like planning for a product and you're treating your book as a product. If you want to captivate somebody, you have to have certain things in a book. You have the emotional pull. You have to have, yeah. you know, a certain pace to it. You have to have a storyline that goes, you know, that climbs quickly, drops, climbs. Like at the end of the day, it has to be in, in your words too. You know, it is not as precise as a formula for sure. There's, right. a, there's a certain, I think there's certain art to it, but I wanted to make sure that I didn't just write a story and hope that it would be successful. I wanted to make sure that it had the best odds to be successful. Mm, yeah. That makes so much sense. There was a, I remember there was like a podcast producer that was telling me like a lot of creatives are just like, oh, I'm just going to do the creative stuff. I don't want to think about the business side of it. But he's like, you have to split your brain in half and think about what is it that will work? Who is the audience? Like a little bit more, the not so sexy and romantic stuff. But when you put those two together, then you have this creative project that's scalable and sustainable and will work and make you money, which is, which lets you do more creative stuff. Well, I think the story itself was so compelling that, um, you know, for me writing it was like turning on the kitchen tap. It just came so quickly. It just flowed so well. And, and the, the key was for me was to write it in a way, use vocabulary, um, pace, all these kinds of things in a way that, that would be, that would be easy for people to read yes. because because I, I personally have a hard time reading things that are thick with description and not a lot of action. So mm. when, when I write, I, I want to write something that I would like to read mm -hmm. is how, what I, I say to myself, you know, like, would you, the ultimate test is, 
would you like to read this book? And, and if the answer is no, then, you know, you're not writing it right. And, <laughs> and, and, and you know, and, and it's funny because I, um, when I started writing the book, I started thinking about my life that way as well. I started thinking, Jenny, if your life was a book, would, would you want to read it? Or, is it, or would it be so boring that you kind of say after the first chapter, no, no thanks. And if, if your life is that kind of a book, you need to, you need to up your game yeah. and, and make it more interesting. So that was a good question for me to ask myself in terms of how I want to live my life as well. So when it comes to writing, Jenny, what is your favorite spot? Because mine is very unconventional. Like when I'm on deadline, I like to uh, just prop two pillows up and then just sit in bed with like all my papers around. Yes. <laughs> not very, not very good for my back, but it does the yeah. job. Yeah, I like pillows too. I I, always, I I lean back on pillows. I actually like to write with music and with a lot of light, mm. and and because so, I like bright, I like um, and I look, like to look at greenery and 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 uh, so I'm fortunate that I I don't I don't like to write in an office. I know a lot of people write in their office with a computer, but to me, um, my writing is in many ways is joyful and it's mm-hmm. and it's emotional and it's and so sometimes when I listen to music, that's, that's very heart more like that's, you know, touching or, or, or that, that isn't, you know, even melancholy, or whatever it actually, yeah, it actually channels into my writing. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's kind of what I enjoy. And often I'll just sit at the kitchen table to write rather than, um, you know, or sit outside on a table to write. And so I'm not conventional that way. Yeah. Um, as we wrap up this interview, what are some of your memories of Taiwan and do you visit often? I haven't been back to Taiwan um, recently. The last trip to Taiwan was when I published My Mother's Secret and I went ah. back to Taiwan um, because they purchased the rights to that book and published it in Taiwan. Yeah. So so my this is the, the, the biggest irony of my life, really, I think, well, I shouldn't say the biggest, but it is an irony of my life, is that when I first arrived in Canada, I could not speak a word of English. Yeah. There is no way that I could have possibly imagined that I would write a novel in English, which would then be translated back into Chinese to be published in Taiwan. Yeah. And I don't read Chinese. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So isn't that something? Yeah, just full circle. And, and, and if you think of that, you know, for, you know, it, it is no wonder that I tell myself, hey, it's all possible. It's all possible. Go for it. And that's yeah. what I tell myself all the time. Yeah. I think so I'm writing my second novel and I've got the same exact energy for it, except this one is taking a lot longer to write. So, but I still believe that, you know, I had believe in that vision and I'm excited about it. Yeah. Now you, you're making me want to write a novel. I don't know what it's about, but that's always been like my childhood dream to like write novels. Um, Jenny, where can listeners find you and connect with you if you do any social media? I'm really not very good at social media. Um, so thank you for, for doing this podcast. I, I don't do, do things like this. Um, but if they want to send me an email and con- connect with me, um, um, the email is Witterick, my last name, W-I-T-T-E-R-I-C-K, Witterick Books at gmail.com. Awesome. Jenny, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so glad we got to have like a little glimpse into your life and your career and um, best of luck on your second book. Thank you so much, Amy. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.